Friends, our scripture reading this morning is once again from 1 Peter. We are in a series on 1 Peter, slowly making our way through this remarkable letter. And we are in the first chapter. Uh, We are going to read verses 3 through 9, but our text for this morning's message will simply be verses 6 through 9. But I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 because you're going to need to remember verses 3 through 5 in order to handle verses 6 through 9, and hopefully that will become apparent to you as we, as we go along this morning. Beginning at verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Um, when this series began, I, I introduced the, the whole thing by saying that I believe that one of the things the church needs to recover in order to be prepared for the future in our Western culture is a robust theology of suffering. In past generations, the church has had a robust theology of suffering, but for a whole host of reasons, that robust theology of suffering has been lost among modern people like you and me. For example, maybe you've heard this, I've heard this many times, many times. I meet someone, uh, introductions, get to know each other a little bit, uh, conversation turns to religion uh, at some point, often because I'm a pastor, it's pretty easy to get there uh, with people uh, when it doesn't feel awkward, what do you do, oh, I'm a pastor, etc. And, and, and very often, the response will be, oh yeah, so you're a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to believe all that. But then something happened in my life. Something big, something extremely painful, something extremely difficult. And then they say, you know, I, I left the faith because of that. You know, I just can't believe that There's a God out there who would allow this kind of thing to happen in my life and he'd still be good. I hear that constantly. Maybe you've heard that before. And the fact of the matter is, bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens 
all the time. The world is rife with tragedy because people suck and because the world is broken. One of my jobs as a pastor is to teach you what it looks like to walk with God through pain and suffering. And I don't just mean sort of the regular aches and pains that, that we, we deal with and the, and the, the, the sort of minor uh, disappointments or frustrations that bother us time and time again. No, no, no. I'm talking about dealing with tragedy. I'm talking about preparing you to face the dreadful and inevitable terrors that some of you are going to experience. Parents who have to bury a child. Business owners who have to declare a bankruptcy. Spouses who are abandoned and betrayed by a husband or a wife. Many people even in the prime of their lives who get a, a diagnosis of a terminal disease. Dealing with your ongoing mental illness, the bouts of deep and profound depression that you feel, or the daily fight and war against your anxiety. Or perhaps watching a loved one, someone who you deeply, deeply care about, destroying themselves, literally destroying themselves through an addiction. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, nothing seems to work, nothing seems to help. They seem to be hell-bent on ruining themselves. Or family, friends, hating you because you chose to follow Jesus rather than the faith of your upbringing or the non-faith of your household. My job is to prepare you to deal with that, to live with that, to wrestle with that, to endure that. We need First Peter in a desperate way, because each of us will have a story of that deep and profound suffering that seeks to overwhelm us, to, to, to hit us like a tsunami and, and wipe us off the mat. And First Peter provides for us unique power to produce in Christians what he calls an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of that profound, dark, deep suffering. First Peter helps us to see that the gospel is not meant to be something finicky that, that works at certain times of our lives when things are going well, when we're on top of the world, when work is, is great, when we're, we're, we're building our business and it just seems to be growing leaps and bounds or, or when our family 
everybody seems to be united and everybody's getting along and our kids are launching into the future really well and that guy that we're dating seems to be really interested and maybe this is going to lead towards, you know, a lifelong commitment, you know. It's not just in those moments, but in these deep, dark depths of despair that Peter says you can hold on to an inexpressible and glorious joy. You can have a robust faith that is able to weather the absolute worst that life and the world can inflict upon you. Friends, I tremble to preach this sermon to you because I know so little of what I'm about to talk about. You ever read 2 Corinthians 4? And you're clipping along, reading all these very interesting things the Apostle Paul has to say, and then he starts talking about suffering, and he says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. And you go, what? What? My troubles are light and momentary, and they're achieving something? There's a goodness in them. What on earth is that? Well, that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. And so let's look at these verses together and see what resources the gospel provides us in the midst of our suffering. First thing is pretty simple. Peter says that we will suffer all kinds or grief in all kinds of trials. It is inevitable that we will suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Notice he says uh, in verse 6, now for a little while you may have had to suffer. You might read that and think that he's saying hypothetically this could happen to you, but actually uh, the language is meant to convey certainty and in fact probably suffering that has already occurred. You're already facing hardship and suffering that is seeking to overwhelm you. And he uses this word grief. You're experiencing grief. And, and the, the word is a, is a very interesting word. It, it, it means to be deeply disturbed. Kind of like when a hurricane is washing, is, is heading inland and, and the sea begins to churn and the waves are, are churned up and, and they're just hammering against the shore and there's all kinds of detritus. Great word, eh? Detritus. Detritus. All kinds of junk in that stuff because the, the, what was on the bottom of the ocean is being sort of stirred up. That's the kind of word that Peter uses here. It's this deep distress. It's this deep sense of pain and disturbed. And he says, you're going to experience all kinds of that. All kinds of that. And that word is really interesting too. The word translated all kinds because it, it, it literally means many colored Paul is saying you're going to experience many different types. There's many different hues, many different shades of suffering. You know, um, uh, I'm not very good with colors like a lot of men. I know the basics, right? That's purple. And then Jessica comes along and says, no, that's lavender. And I say, what's that? Or she says, no, that's mauve. 
And I say, what's that? Because there's many different types of purple. I know my purple. I know the basics. I know the obvious stuff. But then there's, there's very uh, uh, multifaceted and more subtle types of colors as well. well. Well, here Peter is showing us and he's acknowledging that, look, there are some trials that are obvious. You have terminal cancer. That is an obvious trial. It is unhidden. It is clear. Everybody knows about it. But then, there are these secret trials that people live with day in and day out, and if you didn't know them, you wouldn't have a clue that they're, they're carrying the scars of deep internal pain and mental anguish. A woman grieving over a miscarriage that may have happened years ago. A man who walks around every day with, with rage deep inside because of a childhood abuse that they experienced. Relationships that are a mess. You see them on Sunday at church or you see them at the, the ball game or wherever and, and everything seems fine, but whenever a holiday rolls around, all kinds of garbage gets, gets stirred up inside them because they're not going to that reunion because they can't stand their brother or because their, their mother or their father has, has some sort of a grudge against them and the relationships are strained and you don't see any of it. And Paul, Peter is acknowledging that all these things exist. All these types of suffering, all these types of trials are being experienced by people. And you may not know anything of it, but he's validating your pain. Because you see, what, what we often try to do to deal with our suffering is we try to say, well, at least I'm not. Right? So the guy who says, I don't have any shoes, and he says, well, at least I have feet. And then the person who doesn't have any feet says, well, at least I have hands. Like you can go on and on and try to say that, that, that your suffering's not as bad as other people, but you, you know, I could tell you, and if you've tried to play this game, you know it doesn't really work that well. Because it doesn't take away the pain and suffering that you're experiencing. And Peter here is saying that your Lord Jesus, he acknowledges all of it. He understands all of it. And this grief that, that he describes is, is, is a negative emotion, of course. It means having tears. It means weeping. It means sorrow. It means sadness. And yet, Peter says in verse 8, you will still rejoice with an inexpressible joy in the midst of it. And here's the Christian paradox, friends. Deep sorrow and deep joy live together in the hearts of followers of Jesus Christ. In a sense, being a Christian means that you feel both more deeply than you otherwise would. See, most people, the way we deal with our anguish and our hardship is, is we try to suppress it. We try to ignore it. We try to numb it. We try to dismiss it. We try to minimize it. We do all these things to not, not actually experience and face it head on, partly because we don't want to be a pill. 
Who wants to hang out with depressed, sad, lonely, hurting people all the time? It sucks the energy out of you. So you say, well, I can't be like that because then nobody's going to want to talk to me anymore. So I put on that happy face so that people will still have a relationship with me. Sometimes we're doing it because we ourselves don't want to be with ourselves when we're unhappy. And yet, Peter says you don't have to choose between being in deep anguish and still and also holding on to profound joy. You know, I have so many conversations. It's wonderful. Uh, Many men in my age category, okay, like I'm now old enough to be considered an adult. And uh, many men in my age category, we, we, I'll talk to them, they'll come to church, and I'll talk to them, and they'll say, you know, I haven't cried so much in my life. I don't know what's going on with me, but I, I cry every Sunday. The songs make me cry. The sermons make me cry. The, the watching the little kids go out for, for uh, grace kids, it all makes me cry. What's happening to me? And I want to say to them, God is turning you into a real boy. Because our Savior Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. And so he had experiences of deep and profound anguish and yet there was a deeper joy within him that that you cannot even articulate. You can come to church and you can see people crying and you'll think, are are they sad? And some of them are crying because they're so happy, because they're singing songs that are so deeply. And I got to say, Mark is really good at picking music that has deep, profound theology in it. And you start singing the song and you start choking up and you're like, you start crying and people look over and they go, oh, are they okay? And actually, you never felt better. Because you're overwhelmed with joy at, at the, the story of the gospel. At, and, and so you're like, am I crying because I'm sad or am I crying because I'm happy? I'm just a big hot mess. And the, the, the reality is it's both. And let me just as an aside, if I may, before we carry on. If, if, you, if you have people in your life right now who are going through something very hard and you see them weep, Profoundly, they're crying out, they're, they're storming around, they're speaking incoherently, they're saying theologically incorrect stuff, like God must hate me, or something wild or crazy like that. And, and your, 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 your instinct is to think, well, they're not doing very well. Can you please just set that instinct aside? You're thinking that because you're a white Western person who doesn't understand that grief is as profoundly important an emotion and an experience for us to go through as joy and happiness is. Look at Job. You know, Job loses his family, he loses his health, he loses everything, he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he heaps ashes on himself. Now, if anybody looks like they're losing it, it's Job. He throws himself on the ground and probably kicks and screams like a toddler who is having a tantrum. And what does, God, what does the Bible say in Job 1 verse 22? In all this, Job did not sin. Let it out, guys. And don't be afraid to sit beside someone who's letting it out. That's an aside. That's, that's free. The point, though, is, is that Peter says everybody's, everybody hurts sometimes. Second thing, though, is 
Now it's going to get harder. Why? Verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These have come so that. That means these trials are not random. These horrible experiences that you are living through right now are not an accident. They are not because God has restrained His sovereign power and allowed bad things to simply happen. No. There's a purpose. There's intention here. Peter uses a a metaphor from metallurgy, right? When, When you get metal, metal comes, first of all, in an ore state. And because it's in an ore state, meaning it's mixed with rock and minerals and dirt and all kinds of stuff like that, it's actually not very useful because it's so impure. And so it doesn't have the strength that it could have, nor does it have the beauty that it could have. That ore, that those impurities rob this metal of its strength and its beauty. We have kinds of people wearing jewelry in this building right now. I don't see any ladies or men with, with you know, little pieces of rock hanging off your, your ears because that's not quite beautiful. Well, I guess a diamond is a rock. Don't give me a hard time, though. You know what I'm saying. And, and so what do you do? You have to smelt the ore, right? So you, you, you get it hot, white hot, so that you actually liquefy this, this ore, and, and you boil, basically boil out the imperfections in it, so that the metal can reach its highest state of strength and beauty. When you become a Christian, you are in an horrific state. Not a horrific state, although it's kind of horrific, but an orific state. You come as ore. You come with a weak faith, with, with a, a not a very understanding faith, with a very a fickle faith, with an impure faith. It's faith, right? Because there are times where you're like, I love Jesus, I believe in God, I'm trusting my life with Him, I'm doing all the things that He wants me to do, I feel very close to Him, and, you know, things seem to be pretty good between me and, and my God. But then something happens in your life, and your, your, your interests are, are distracted, your desires are, t- are, are played upon by the devil and by the flesh and by your own sinful heart, and so you are not very willing to submit to God's will, you're not very willing to obey him and follow him and do what he wants in in your life. You're not very willing to trust him with your circumstances and you might even become a little bit bitter and a little bit angry and a little bit frustrated with him. And so you wander because you're impure and you doubt and you question and you sulk and you complain. That faith needs tempering, you know, The process of tempering metal is to heat it up, cool it down, heat it up, cool it down, heat it up, cool it down, makes it stronger, makes it more flexible, and that's what God 
the divine metallurgist does to you. He will not leave you as ore. Which means, sometimes he will boil you. He will take you to places in your life where you do not want to go. He will give you things in your life that you do not want to have. And the fact is, is he's doing it because he loves you. Now listen, here's, here's the application. Here's the thing that makes me terrified. Here's the thing that I tremble to say to you. Not, and I do it because this is not my experience, this talking. This is the word of God talking only. When you suffer... You want to cry out, God, where is your grace? And you might be getting it right there in that moment. The great 17th century preacher, 18th century preacher, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he said, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Whew. The trial itself is a grace of God. I know someone who is dying of cancer. Who the doctors have said essentially... We don't think that there's any medication left that we're aware of that can put an end to your cancer and save your life. And of course, this person's crying out for relief and I'm crying out for relief for them. I pray for them all the time, please, oh God, take it away, relieve them. But what God tells us in First Peter is that sometimes, yes, you will receive relief because that's what you need, and sometimes you will not because you need to be refined. Because you can't grow without it. Peter says here that your faith is more precious than gold. He says here that it is more valuable than anything else that could compare. He uses gold because at that time, okay, gold was the most precious substance on the planet. There was nothing anybody knew of that was more valuable, more precious than gold. And Peter is daring to say that your faith is more important than your health. Your faith is more important than your children. Your faith is more important than your very life. Because your faith does not perish when refined by fire. Instead, it is, uh, it, it, it is actually purified and, and uh, made more glorious and it will, it will be eternal. It will last forever. Through your suffering, you become strong and you become beautiful. Helen Keller. <laughs> Helen Keller. You guys all know who Helen Keller is, right? She became deaf. She became blind. She said, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. 
Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, can vision be cleared, can ambition be inspired, can success be achieved. I quote Helen Keller because I need to find... This is not my experience. I've had my share of suffering, but I've not been diagnosed with a terminal disease. I've not been, been saddled with, with an ongoing mental health condition that, that continues to ravage my life. Charles Spurgeon did. Great 18th, 19th century preacher, Baptist preacher, one of the, the great uh, stories of, of God's power at work in his people through the preaching of his word. This guy was a giant of a man. He accomplished so much, but he, throughout his life, was afflicted with deep and profound depression that would attack him for weeks, sometimes months at a time. He couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't, he couldn't uh, talk to his children. He couldn't, he couldn't communicate with his wife. He couldn't do much of anything. He, he had to spend months because of the physical pains that he was also facing. He had to spend months away from his family in warmer climate because uh, the, the climate of England was so, so hard on him. And his entire life, this is a man who was deeply, he had to have a deep and profound relationship with God. He was intimately related to God. He knew God in ways that you and I can probably only dream of. He had experiences of God's love, which he did describe in some of his books that were, that were so profound and so uh, uh, otherworldly that he literally could not express them. He had deep, inexpressible joy. This was a man who knew God, who gave his life to God in service to God, who nevertheless was afflicted over the course of his lifetime with terrible, terrible bouts of dark clinical depression. And you know what he said? I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. He didn't ask for the waves. He didn't look for the waves. He didn't invite the waves. But he welcomed them. And you think to yourself, how dare you say that? How can you believe that? How is that possible? It's it's cruel. Well, I have a bunch of philosophical arguments ready if you want to talk after the service and get all intellectual about it, sure, but that's not what Peter does here, and so I'm not going to do that now. You know how Peter can dare talk about it? Because of the goal. Verse 7, once again. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, listen, here's the goal, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This precious faith, this tenacious faith, that, that will cling to God and his goodness and proclaim his greatness even through the most profound suffering, this durable faith 
that can endure the hatred of the whole world if it has to be, and the corruption of our bodies that are falling apart, and every sort of suffering that we could imagine. He says it will result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. What on earth is he talking about? Friends, he is talking about your deepest desire. In fact, this is a desire that exists so deep within you that you may not even recognize it's there. And you certainly cannot completely understand it. It's so deep you can't really grasp exactly what it is. C.S. Lewis called it the inconsolable secret. It's a desire that lives within you that nothing in this world, nothing in the created order can satisfy. Why do you think people are constantly chasing after the next buzz, the next hit, the next achievement, the next pleasure? Lewis said it's because of this inconsolable secret that you don't even quite understand how it is. I can't even explain it, so i got to quote him. This is from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. No one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had, all these years, prevented me from understanding what is, in fact, the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before her teacher, a creature before its creator. I'm not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into a deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what might happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond itself, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, listen carefully, that face, capital F, that face which is either the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost 
incredible and only possible through the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really choose shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be an ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That's Tolkien. But that's what Lewis is fleshing out here. You know, when a kid comes home and they've done something well and mom or dad says, good job, and you see their chest swell with, with, with holy pride, that they have pleased their parent, that they have done well and they receive that accolade with joy and even with thanksgiving. That's what, Lewis, that's what Peter is telling us we will face at the last day. That's what makes all the suffering. That's what makes all the trials. That's what makes all the late nights getting up with, your, with your, your special needs child and holding them in the dark when they won't sleep. That means every time you drive to the hospital to, to help your ailing parent who's, who's losing their, their, their minds and their bodies at the same time in front of you. That's what it means that every time you wake up and you care for your kids after you have been left by your spouse who has found someone better and you are responsible and you teach them the word of God and you point them to Jesus and you take them to school and you care for them day in and day out. That's what it means when you face your suffering, the death of a loved one or the impending death of a mother or a father or a brother or a child and you say, even though I'm in this pain, I refuse to, to curse my Savior because I know he is good and he loves me. That, he says, makes every one of those things worth it that on the last day you will stand before God and your faithfulness, which you didn't even provide, because you can only be faithful by the power of his Holy Spirit, but that faithfulness that you demonstrated, he will look at and he will, with, with a smile on his face, your Savior will say, well done. Well done. My good, my faithful servant. That's what makes it worth it. You know, uh, <laughs> some women, uh, when they get pregnant, they, they have morning sickness, and their pregnancies are brutal, okay? They wake up every day, they're puking, their head's in the toilet, they feel like garbage, but they're filled with an inexpressible joy in the midst of their agony because all those things mean there's life. There's a baby inside them. And so they can rejoice with this inexpressible joy even as they experience this pain and anguish. Why? Verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, if you want to wonder 
or if you wonder, is this for me? Is, is this destination mine? Is, is, is this inheritance mine? Is it really for me? Look at that last section. In verse 8, you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy. Listen, ask yourself, do you love Jesus? You've never seen him. He walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Nobody's seen him face to face in the flesh for for some 2,000 years. You've never seen him. You weren't at the cross. You didn't see it happen. You didn't see him dying there for your sin. But when you think of the fact that he did that, that he, that he sacrificed himself for you, when you let that sink into you, does it melt your heart and make you say, I just love you, Jesus? Not perfectly. Not by a long shot. That's proof. That's proof that this is for you. I know that there are many stories in this place today of pain, of disappointment, of woundings. But if you love Jesus, even in the midst of all of that, then this is yours. This is his promise to you. He is accomplishing the thing which you most deeply want, the salvation of your soul, because it means that one day you will be reunited with him, the one that you love, and you will be able to touch him and hold him and thank him and be with him forever and ever.